This conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available at Fuller, a new way to learn and community this fall with youth, family, and culture cohort. This online cohort offers new students a youth-focused pathway within the Master of Divinity, MA in Theology, MA in Theology and Ministry, or MA in Intercultural Studies degree. Interact with Fuller's world-class faculty as part of a tight-knit cohort and benefit from tailored course sequences, dedicated cohort advisors, career planning support, and a commitment to whole life formation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash youth cohort. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is Kara Meredith. She's the author of The Color of Life, a contributor for Christianity Today, Red Letter Christians, speaker, and to many other outlets. Kara, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, before I started recording, we were exchanging trash talking about the fact that your Golden State Warriors are in the finals yet again as they're trying to purchase another championship. Um, you know, yeah, whatever. Kevin, Kevin Durant, <laughs> you know, the team. So at least we can uh, say to our audience, you know, you land yourself in, in the Bay Area, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. Absolutely. Well, I, I have become a Golden State Warriors fan. I did attend uh, the first um, parade a couple of years ago when we lived in Oakland. So that, I, I will say, regardless of whether or not they win the championship, because I know this episode won't air until after the fact, um, I am still a fan. Uh, but I actually grew up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, so born in California, but then grew up in uh, the state of Oregon and um, went to undergrad in Washington State, also worked there off and on, uh, but have mostly been in the Bay Area since uh, 2001. So I've mostly called the San Francisco Bay Area, um, but for a couple of blips uh, up in the greater Seattle area, I've mostly called the Bay Area home. I noticed that you didn't predict another finals victory. Um, you just kind of... <laughs> Back to point A, I'm I'm trying to be the peacemaker here, um, but you know, I will say there's solidarity. Steph Curry decided to name his youngest child after my oldest son. So we share, um, our children share the name Cannon, C-A-N-O-N, which uh, you know, has its roots not only in N.C. Wright, calling uh, the, the books of the Bible the canon, um, but Steph Curry and I are like this. If you could see my fingers are crossed right now. So they will actually be winning the championship. I just didn't want you to feel bad because of the comments you had just made. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can't say too much. I, I just, I'm not a big fan of purchase dynasties. Uh, but then again, I, I did, I did, I am and grew up a, an Alabama Crimson Tide fan. So it's hard for me to, to, to take that too far. I, I really like Steph Curry. He's a North Carolina boy. He did some good 
good work here. And, and, uh, I just wish that the Duke blue devils had picked him up instead of, uh, you know, him going to that no name college. <laughs> you know, Andy, I'll pray for you. Um, <laughs> I, I really will pray for you and for your change of heart. And I'm so glad that our conversation is currently, and hopefully will continue to be spoken through sarcasm. Uh, <laughs> it's it really, it's my strongest suit. And I really appreciate when other people, uh, are on the same wavelength. So, um, I, I can't wait for your audience to hear this incredible <laughs> conversation all about how the Golden State Warriors dominated and yet how I continue to want to play peacemaker and not make you feel bad yes. um, about your loss. Yes. So, well, yeah. Uh, Thank you. My prayers, my prayers, my heart be with you. The sarcasm has never entered into this podcast. So this will be a, a new yeah. and fresh take uh, for, for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Welcome. Now, you uh, grew up in Oregon. What part of Oregon are you from? Uh, mostly in uh, the greater Salem area. Uh, Salem is the state capital, so it's kind of right in the middle. Um, actually, not right in the middle, but it's in the middle of the Willamette Valley. So south of Portland, um, in between Eugene and Portland. Uh, but we also lived um, in Pendleton, which is uh, in the eastern side of the state, and in Tillamook, which is on the coast. Uh, but really spent um, the majority of my formative years in Salem. Uh, my parents are still there, and uh, so that's it's oftentimes where oftentimes where we go back to to visit and hang out and um, and and just take it all in. So it's one of those beautiful places on earth. We just spent some time in the Columbia River Gorge a couple months mm. ago on a spiritual retreat. So my my heart is oh, in wow. Oregon. So. Um, now at, at some point you sensed a, a call to ministry and headed to seminary. Walk us through that process in your life. Absolutely. So I was, um, I was a high school English teacher for four years right after college. Um, and the interesting thing was that just backtracking a little bit, I had been involved, um, in high school and then in college, largely involved with, um, an outreach ministry that some of your listeners might be familiar with called Young Life. Uh, and my freshman year of college, Young Life in Western Washington made a call, so to speak, uh, not for more staff people, uh, but to have a teacher in every school in the state of Washington. Uh, and so I said, wow, maybe I will become a teacher. Uh, so really, I became a teacher um, out of a calling in that way, um, a calling that was kind of given from the stage. But um, I love teaching. Uh, I taught for, granted, I only taught for four years, but at the end of it, having taught in both the private and public sector, I actually returned to Young Life and went, then went on staff for um, eight years. Um, and for me, it was one of those, I realized that I loved being with students. Um, I didn't love grading their papers. Um, I loved being with students, especially in the public school setting, and wanted to walk alongside them more. Uh, so that for me, uh, as soon as I then started with Young Life, I also began pursuing my um, theological degree. Uh, Young Life at the time, we had to take um, a certain amount of courses um, for the first two years of our internship, uh, for the first two years that we were on staff. So I had to take these courses, but I had the choice whether or not to pay for those. Um, and I was always one of those nerdy kids who I, I really, I hated taking tests, but I love writing. I love reading. Um, and studying and just learning my way through it. So I said, of course, I'm going to, um, I'm going to get my, my seminary degree. Um, so I, I, we had a number of schools we could choose from. I chose Fuller. Um, and then after the two years, I had, a, I had a handful of credits and then really just ended up continuing my theological education. 
Um, I ended up going for the master's of theology degree um, at that time, which was about a decade ago. At that time, uh, uh, I thought, well, I'm never going to become a pastor. Why would I ever want to, uh, you know, preach or, or teach at a church, which I say that because ironically, that's a big part of my job now. I do a lot of um, preaching and teaching on the side as a minister. And so um, I, the only difference between the MDiv and the MAT, the Masters of Arts and Theology, at that time was uh, the, the difference of Hebrew and Greek. So I completed the, M, the MAT, the Masters of Theology, which was two classes short of the MDiv, um, and graduated, um, I'm going to say probably 2012. So it was, it was, I was one of those kids who took um, eight years in seminary. Uh, and for Fuller, you had to complete it in 10 years or else uh, your credits were rescinded and you had to start all over. But um, I now am, uh, I, I have my master's of theology degree, which, which I just consider a privilege and, and an honor to even um, have been able to get the degree. Um, and then six and a half years ago, after I had been on staff with Young Life for, um, again, about eight years, um, I sensed that it was time. And whether you want to call that a calling or just simply um, that sometimes doors open and sometimes doors close. Sometimes it's time and sometimes it's not time, but it was time for me to leave ministry. Um, and for me, it was also time for me to step into writing and speaking, um, as well as caring for our older son who had just been born. Well, shameless plug, Fuller is a sponsor of the podcast. So <laughs> hey yo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey Fuller. That's fascinating to to go. Um, you know, of course I had um I was a little different than a lot of my classmates. I, you know, was first calling, I was in ministry and mm -hmm. a lot of people I went to seminary with were like you, uh, kind of a um in, into your career second calling um nature. And it's it's always fascinating for me to to listen to the stories of people who hear that shift. Um, that God's calling them to in their life and their willingness to step forward in that. And there's uh, so much courage and strength that comes with your willingness to do that. Um, but you did make a transition kind of um, more into this uh, nature of writing. Walk us through what that's like for you. Yeah, you know, I, I, was, I came on the cusp of uh, several writers um, who had been discovered through the blogging medium. So I left ministry at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. Uh, so by that point, uh, there were names. Um, for, for me, I was looking at a, a lot of names of different women, authors and writers like Sarah Bessie and um, the beloved Rachel Held Evans, um, my dear friend, uh, Micah Boyette, and some other folks who really had gotten their start um, in the blogosphere. And so I thought, well, I will do the same. I will start blogging. Um, and someone will discover me and probably after a year I will get a book contract and, um, and end of story. I'll, I'll become a famous author. <laughs> uh, and I kind of forgot that sometimes you actually have to get your butt in a chair. You have to do the work. Um, so for me, um, it was, it was a really interesting process, probably a year into having left. Um, I, I kept saying I left to pursue writing and speaking. I had always loved writing. I did a, a ton of speaking when I was on staff with Young Life, um, and had started do. I, I'd, I'd been speaking professionally for a number of years by then, um, and so probably about a year into it, I realized that um, no one actually knew that no one actually knew my calling. 
again, for, for lack of better phrase, but I remember finally going, oh, wait a minute. I wonder if people don't actually know that, that this truly was a calling out. You're called in until you're called out. Um, and, and so I, I ended up sending just groups of emails to all these different people I knew from seminary to ministry to different churches, um, churches that I had spoken for before and done events with, um, and just said, hey, this is my heart. And this is, this is what, um, this is what I, I think I'm supposed to be doing. And so if you ever hear or have opportunities that you think I might be a good fit for, please pass my name along. Thank you for thinking of me. Um, so speaking actually came first in that regard in this last season. Um, and then probably about three years in, I realized, wow, I'm giving away a whole lot of writing. And I think that people actually pay for you to write things. But I didn't know how to do that. And I hadn't been discovered. Um, so I made it a goal to start to learn how to pitch um, and how to write for different publications, how to get paid to write, essentially. So that was probably about three or four years ago. Um, and from that, the process, um, in the midst of that, I had been writing a, a different book. And so I have a book that I wrote that no human, yourself included, my best friend Andy, um, will ever read. Uh, but it's a it's a book, a 77,000 word memoir that sits on the back burner of my computer. And it was it was a story about being a woman in ministry and leaving ministry and becoming a mother and going through a faith crisis uh, during this whole time. Um, and I had been querying that to a number of different agents. And after getting my after receiving my 35th rejection, um, from an agent for that book that I just, I, I felt for certain was what I was supposed to write and what the world was supposed to read. Um, I had an article, it was probably the, the second or third article I'd ever been, um, been paid to write, I guess you could say. And that article ran, uh, the, age, or the, the editor I had worked with, she knew a little bit about my story and she knew um, that, that I was in an interracial marriage, that I had mixed race kids. Um, but that I had also married the son of a civil rights icon and that as a white woman, that that experience had changed me. And so she had asked me to write a long form essay about it. And so I did. And the essay ended up going viral, which for, for the writers in our midst, that uh, we, for lack of better phrase, that's, that's what we kind of hope for. We hope that our writing is going to do well. Um, and so from that, the first agent I had ever queried, the one that I had wanted all along, uh, she, she um, emailed me within 24 hours, within a day, and she just said, Kara, put away that memoir that you've been trying to sell, that you, um, that you think the rest of the world wants to read. She said, put that away. That's not the one you were supposed to write. That's maybe the one that, um, that you were supposed to write to show you you could write another book. But she said, this one and she, she was referencing the article I had just written. She said, this is what people are hungry for. And right now in our country, this especially is what people are hungry for. This is the book you're supposed to write. Um, so I ended up signing with her. And about a year later, we got um, a book contract for the book. And um, the book, which is titled The Color of Life, uh, just came out four months ago. I think it's, it's four months old today. So um, that's been my journey, is that now I, I do write, I speak, um, and I'm also getting ready to take a sabbatical this summer, which I've never been more excited for in my whole, whole life. So there's that part of it too. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's a, it's a fascinating book. Um, it tells the story of your uh, interracial marriage, the challenges of facing two cultures and the blending of a family uh, and the deconstruction of, of white privilege. You, you wrote this book with so much vulnerability. Um, why, why such an open and honest approach to writing? Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Uh, you know, the, the irony is that I felt I didn't necessarily feel like I was um, being that vulnerable, <laughs> but, um, but I, I realized in retrospect that I was, um, and, um, and I, I also realized that it was necessary. It was necessary to enter into that. Um, the, the first and second and 30th drafts of the book were certainly not so vulnerable, um, but I had a number of beta readers and editors um, who would identify as fours on the Enneagram. If you or your listeners are familiar with the Enneagram, um, the fours are the ones who feel all the feels. And, and so many of those um, men and women can encourage me to go deeper and to dig deeper into the stories. Um, so, you know, it's one of those, I oftentimes look at the book and um, I just had it, I had an event last night at one of the local library branches. And, um, and I, I remember reading through it and go, reading through different sections of the book and going, wow, I, I really went deep in this particular section. Um, but I also felt like I was only giving some snapshots of the book. Um, so there were maybe, you know, so it was, it was going very deep. You know, we think about that song we used to sing as kids going deep and not wide. So to me, it felt like it was going, it, I, I was being deeply vulnerable in different snapshots, but really the snapshots as a whole, um, you know, maybe only made up 5% or 2% of my life, um, that there are so many more stories that, that didn't make it into the pages of the book. Um, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a deep believer that vulnerability begats vulnerability, however we want to say it. And so, um, you know, just as, just as um, when we open up about our own messiness, about being real and we begin to wrestle through these things, I think it also gives other people permission to do the same. And my greatest hope with the book uh, is that it would give folks permission to enter into the conversation. Um, that for those of us who identify as white, that it would give us permission to enter into stories of justice, race, and privilege. Um, because many, many of us have not had to think about those things before. But what does it mean for every single one of us to wrestle with these stories and to enter in? And so if telling part of my own story and being vulnerable with that um, and being vulnerable with permission to also tell some of those, um, some of the stories of my husband and of my father-in-law and um, of different people, if, if that helps other, other people enter in to places of vulnerability, then, then what an honor to be able to be part of that as well. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. 
Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Well, let's talk um, about privilege. You wrote, privilege is a nest egg. Privilege is the family inheritance. Vacation to the Bahamas. Privilege is not worrying about where your next meal is coming from because the pantry is always fully stocked. This this is a sticky subject, as have you have written on, and I know many ministers, including myself, have come to the full terms of our of our white privilege, and 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 I guess in in many respects. And yet, we serve local churches that do not think the way we think, or are not afforded with the same opportunity that we are, which is to think twenty four seven theologically about such matters. So, so how might local church ministers help our congregations begin to understand the stickiness of white privilege and also point to how we can reconcile it with the reality of the rest of the world? Mm, yeah. Um, I like how you use the word sticky and, um, and I'm, I'm looking at that paragraph as well going, Oh, I, I did actually write, and this is where things start to feel sticky (laughs) Um, because like you just said, but because our birth and our circumstances are out of our control. Um, And so what does that mean for all of us? Um, I I think it means that we have to continue to um, come back to the question and continue to wrestle with it. Um, For ministers in particular, um, when it comes to leading um, their own local congregations. What does it mean um, for us, no matter the color of our skin, but especially if we identify as white, what does it mean for us to identify the ways that we're still holding on to our privilege? Even if we notice it, it's one thing to notice, but it's another thing to do something about it. So what does it mean in the context of local um, congregations, for instance, or in local communities? to to say, yes, I noticed, I, I've grappled with my privilege, I've wrestled with it, and this is sticky. Um, and, and yet, what does it mean to look at who's holding the power? Um, if we truly believe uh, in, a, in a church or religious context um, that 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning is, um, is the most divided hour in America, then what are we doing to... to um, to undivide that, for lack of a better word, what are we doing to um, to pinpoint the roots of stickiness? What are we doing um, to to have shared power and to say, yes, I'm going to look around at who's seated at the table, at who's making decisions, and um, it's not then going to just be about inviting a guest a guest speaker to come in and preach once a year so that I fill a diversity slot, but instead it's going to be about sharing power with my brothers and sisters um, who may not um, have been given a seat at the table before and or whom I may have um, marginalized. So, I mean, I think that's part of uh, what I would begin to say in answer to your question. Um, And now I don't even remember the second half of your question because I just got so excited about that first one. <laughs> so you, you can erase this part or you can keep it in, but <laughs> well, no, we can keep talking about privilege, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge. I mean, um, you know, I don't, I don't mean for that to sound like I've arrived or, you know, colleagues of mine have arrived. I mean, we've, we've wrestled and continue to wrestle with this, I guess maybe, um, our eyes have been a little bit more open than, than many of our congregants because they're, 
people are, are busy in life and busyness is not an excuse to not become aware theologically and culturally uh, about privilege. But, you know, I guess the challenge for our ministers is, you know, the practical ways that we can begin to expose and nurture and nudge our congregations to begin to uh, to see the the effects of white privilege um, in our lives, but more importantly, in the lives of other people. And maybe your story is a great place for that. You spoke a great deal about wrestling with the differences of your upbringing and the cultural privileges um, when you fully encountered your husband's upbringing, cultural oppression. And you wrote, as a, as a white woman who lives in a predominantly white existence, I have never, nor will I ever, experience oppression, at least not because of the color of my skin, I might see the effects of racial oppression firsthand because my life is intertwined with the man who fought against the grave realities of injustice, but I will never fully experience what it means to be slighted for having darker skin. Um, Take us a little deeper there into that experience for you. Absolutely. Um, You know, I I mean, this is, this is uh, conversations of race 101, but um, we, as, as a white person, I will never experience racism. As a white person, you will never experience racism. And um, I think this is where we have an incredible opportunity to, uh, to begin to listen um, to those we haven't always listened to, um, to those we haven't always taken the chance, or to, we, we haven't always chosen to, um, to hear the stories of. But for me, a huge part of my journey has um, has been realizing that this is real, if I can be totally honest, and um, that the stories of racial oppression that my husband experienced um, from the time he was born, that his father fought for and continues to fight for, um, that we now notice in our sons who are mixed race, um, that we have conversations about, and we, we realize how real this is that we have experienced as a family, but for me, I, I will never truly, I, I will never truly experience the effects of racial oppression because of the color of my skin, because mine, um, my, my skin is white because mine is, is the color of privilege. Uh, and so what does it mean for us to begin to enter into this and say, okay, the, the best and the biggest thing I can do right now is to listen and learn and listen some more. That, that is, that is my role, for lack of a better phrase, is to enter into this and, and to enter into it as a listener and a learner. Um, so, so when I say that, um, you know, so it's, it's one of those, it's, um, it, it's hard because this is real. And I think for, um, I guess if I'm totally honest, I think for a long time, I just was kind of like, well, yeah, it's real. Um, I, I hear what you're saying, but can we just move on from it? Um, but you know, one of the, one of the earliest lessons for me, especially in marriage was to realize how deep the pain ran. Um, and that the pain that my husband had experienced because of the oppression he had experienced because of the color of the skin, that that was something that would continue to make its way into our marriage. That that was something that both of us would continue to fight for and against, um, for his redemption and wholeness but um, to fight against that oppression, that no matter the work that he did, that that would continue to hold a seat at the table, so to speak. Um, So what does it mean for us to say, okay, if I am intertwined with you, regardless of whether we're talking marriage or just simply humanity, that if I am in relationship with my brothers and sisters of color, then this means that I am also entering into a relationship 
of pain, but I, I am entering into holding pain and holding your pain and being in this with you means that I am being in it with you um, in the pain that you hold um, and that I've, I've probably contributed to without even realizing it. You spoke uh, about listening and seeing um, the great Frederick Buechner in his work at Whistling in the Dark wrote, um, if we are to love our neighbors before doing anything else, we must see our neighbors with our imagination as well, our eyes. That is like an artist, we must see not just their faces, but the life behind and within their faces. Here it is that love is at the same frame we see them. What are, what are some practical tools you can give us for, uh, for listening and seeing um, in order to engage this conversation of race and racism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think practically speaking, um, uh, I, I'm sure many of your listeners have read the book, but um, Brian Stevenson, he wrote Just Mercy. Um, I want to say it came out maybe in 2014. Um, but Just Mercy is one of my favorite books. Um, Stevenson is a brilliant man, but um, he says that we have to get proximate. Um, we have to get proximate to the pain, going back to that pain. But um, we, we start, maybe, maybe even before that, we start by noticing, um, regardless of whether we, um, regardless of the communities that we reside in, um, I oftentimes go and speak to communities and they say, well, I, I, I'm in an all white community. How then am I supposed to, um, you know, what do I do now? And, it, and, and I always say in reply, actually just start looking around you because chances are you don't actually live in an all white community. You're just not seeing everyone who's there. Um, so, so what does it mean then to begin noticing, but to also uh, begin to get proximate, whether that's with serving, whether that's with, um, uh, you know, just um, so, so serving in, with, within ministries in the local church um, and or in your own neighborhood. Um, I think one of the most tangible things we can do is to raise our awareness um, Jamar Tisby says this all the time. I'm sure many of your listeners are um, familiar with him as well, but um, he, he oftentimes writes that uh, we, we have to raise our awareness and raising our awareness um, can include everything from diversifying our social media feeds to watching documentaries about racial history in our country um, to accessing websites and podcasts um, by racial and ethnic minorities. Um, so I, I think about that and I, I take my cues from uh, folks like Jamar Tisby and Brian Stevenson and other leaders who have been in this work and who are continuing to speak out against it um, and, and to say, okay, what does this mean? Tangibly, yes, I get proximate. Tangibly, um, I, I enter into lament. Um, lament may not feel like the most tangible thing, but I think it's, also, it's, it's something that um, we can enter into the pain. Um, maybe that's, it's coming back to that. Um, but for local communities, I would, I would encourage local communities and faith communities especially to wrestle with this and um, to invite speakers in. Um, one of the things I do mostly locally, but is to host conversations with friends of color um, in different church environments. And um, it's one of those that it's uh, just last week in Santa Cruz, California, 
um, an old friend of mine, he and I sat on stage. We've known each other for 20 years. And, and we said, we, we got up on stage. He's a Latino and Filipino man. And we said, okay, this might be hard and this might be uncomfortable, both for us and for, for those of you who are listening. But this is necessary because it's necessary for all of us to enter into these conversations. It's necessary for all of us to begin talking about issues of justice, race, and privilege, and to, to receive this invitation and to do something about actually entering in. So I hope that from those, there might be something tangible in that um, and or something tangible that might be able to be um, extrapolated from it. I'm not sure, though. Um, I didn't prepare for that, so my apologies if so. And or what, just just cheer on the Golden State Warriors. Um, get proximate <laughs> to the beauty of uh, the team that is uh, about to get their uh, third championship. Um, and it, is it is it in six years? I, I can't. Remember. Is it six? Is that what is that what the record is right now? Um, I lost count. You, anyway, you start to get a it, discount when you're yeah. buying them. So um, yeah. Right, let's, let's, <laughs> let's go back to uh, just a little bit in your your process. Um, um, because words matter. And one of the most compelling stories um, from your book is this shift you made in what you called your husband and your children. Mm. Um, and I, to me, it's such a, a practical tool for, for our listeners and their parishioners to begin to think about. Walk us through that narrative. Oh, yes. Well, this narrative is embarrassing at best. And um, I, I'm not sure what it would be at worst. Um, <laughs> horrifying at worst, maybe. Um, I oftentimes have said on different podcasts and radio interviews that my book is essentially a lesson in what not to do. Um, in a lot of the mistakes, um, I, 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 don't, I, I wasn't trying to pump myself up and make myself look like an incredible person because the truth is that I got a lot of it wrong. And one of the main ways that I got it wrong, so to speak, was um, in the monikers that I made for my husband and my boys. Um, so as I told you earlier, um, I left uh, the traditional workforce six and a half years ago. And at that time, again, I started, um, I, I started by, by thinking, well, I'll just start blogging and I'll just become a really big deal on the internet through my blog. Um, and many of the blogs that I had been um, following in order to protect their loved ones and or to um, make people laugh or whatever it is. Um, they created monikers um, or nicknames for their family members. Um, and so I thought, well, I will do the same. And in an effort both to buck the system, and again, I was at that point, I was in seminary, um, and I, would, I was doing, I, I was occasionally preaching um, at different churches, but I would go to these churches, and it was, you know, without a doubt, and maybe you've done this, Andy, I'm not sure, but without a doubt, these men in particular would get up on stage and they would start talking about their wives and they would talk about their smoking hot wives. Um, and, and it was one of those, I would just go, are you kidding me? What you were, you were completely objectifying women. Whenever you say that you're objectifying your wife. Um, but they would talk about their smoking hot wife. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to buck the patriarchy. And if they can talk about their smoking hot wife, then I am both going to kind of, um, throw up my fist toward uh, that which is being said, but I'm also going to show people that um, I'm a white woman who's married to a black man, and because of that, I have um, an awareness of issues of race. So I decided to um, nickname my husband online the HBH, or Hot Black Husband, um, 
And, you know, at first it kind of made other people laugh. Um, I would use it in bylines. I would use it when I was telling a story about him on my blog. Eventually when I began to write um, more so on the internet, I would use it in my in my other bylines um, for, for additional, you know, for additional articles that I was writing. And um, as time went on, eventually a couple years later, um, our oldest son, I was pregnant with my oldest son and uh, I thought, well, what am I going to call him? And so again, thinking that maybe people would just realize that um, I was a different kind of white person, um, that I was woke for lack of a better word, um, I decided to call my unborn son, my unborn child, my little, uh, my little Carmel. And so here we had the HBH and the little Carmel and I was writing all over the internet and I was writing on my blog and I had started podcasting. I was a co-host on a podcast at that time. And, um, my co-host was a black woman and, um, she ended up at one point referencing, Um, my husband and referencing him as the HBH. And because of that, we ended up hearing from another listener who just said uh, to both of us, but she just said, how can you continue to objectify black men like that? Um, To my co-host, you know, there was, there was one message as far as it went with being a black woman and saying this. Um, But, but to me also, how could I continue to do that? And how could both of us, continue to engage in conversations of racial and social justice and um, be so blatantly objectifying the ones we loved. And so I remember getting this email. Um, it was, I remember we were in Seattle at the time. Uh, I remember it being a somewhat hot summery night and I just sat on our back patio and talked with my friend, with my co-host and said, wow, I, I, I have to, I have to retire it. I have to put this away. I have to never use this again. Um, so I ended up writing a blog post later that night, which was just, which was essentially an apology letter. Um, and I apologized um, both to my readers of color, but also to my um, readers who identified as white. And, and I just said, this is not helping the conversation any. And I'm sorry if my words and the ways in which I was trying to help the conversation. I'm sorry if it didn't actually help. Um, that ended up being one of my most uh, read posts and shared posts, which was in a sense terribly embarrassing because I had gotten it wrong. Um, but I also just go, what, what's the point if we're not willing to admit when we're wrong, um, if we're not willing to, to, to listen to the feedback and to the voices of other people and to admit our mistakes? So um, I believe all references um, to said former monikers are off the internet now. Um, There might be a couple that are still living, but for the most part, um, all of those references were erased. We deleted all of those blog posts um, and that was necessary. But that story also is in the book now. So um, maybe it's a lesson to other people, um, but maybe it's also, it's, it's just part of the journey and we're all on journeys in that way. Hmm. I was about to say, if you're going to erase it, don't put it in the book that's getting published, you know, thousands of times. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it was a brilliant the, story yeah. just of, uh, you know, the, the terminology we use so often and we don't think twice about until someone we care for, at least someone yeah. we trust 
um, their voice to speak into our ear to give us a different perspective of it. Um, yeah. You know, there's two debates there, not only in what that term can mean in a derogatory sense, but also how we pronounce it. That goes up there with pecan and pecan, uh, you know, regionally. Is it caramel or caramel? Uh, <laughs> I always get it wrong no matter where I am. We've quickly learned in Louisiana it is not pecan, it's pecan, and you will quickly be corrected on that if you say it down here. So. Well, come on over the West Coast because we're going to be eating all the pecans. So, <laughs> <laughs> so for, uh, for local churches, how, how might they best use this book? Well, I would encourage you to, um, I would encourage your local churches to uh, buy out a stack of, a, a, a box of books. They usually come 44 to a box. Uh, but to honestly, to enter into it um, as a conversation, I, I personally think that it's a great book to enter into um, for a book club or study group in that way. Um, actually, on my uh, website in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be um, down, there's going to be free downloadable um, book club questions and a study guide. So that'll be available to readers, uh, which I'm really excited about. But I, I would encourage folks to enter in. Um, it's very purposefully a story-driven book. So it'll be different from that 12-chapter Christian living type of book um, that, that has the, the clear beginning and end. Um, but throughout it, um, there's, there, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of theology. Um, there's a lot of stories of God and of Jesus and of the Bible. Um, but it's more so, more than anything, it's an invitation. And so I hope that for every church, um, that they're able to, uh, to use it as an invitation. So maybe, maybe churches read through my book and then they host their own conversation in which, um, in, in which uh, a, a white person, for instance, and a person can, of color can come in and, and truly talk and open up dialogue for this. So more than anything, I hope that it serves to um, help people explore the conversation um, and to help us talk about the things that we're not always talking about that we have to keep talking about. Um, so that's my heart. You're welcome to hire me. I'd love to fly out to Louisiana and or wherever um, to come visit, but I think you also have some pretty amazing folks in your own communities that could speak to these um, issues too. For those that want to stay connected with Kara by visiting her website, karameredith.com. Follow her on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Go out and purchase The Color of Life wherever books are sold. Uh, Kara, thank you for being vulnerable enough to use your story to give us eyes to see and ears to hear a new narrative, one where we see that our privilege affects others. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on, Andy. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.